Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a new podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Center's Coalition and Radio Science at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. The series has been developed in partnership with Season 4 of the Sapiens Podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapiens series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Rafael Cruz Gil, and I am a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Cornell and a member of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. And I'm Caroline Barsotti, a graduate student in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. In this episode, we welcome the featured guests from episode three of Sapiens season four for a conversation on archaeology, burials, ancestors, and the search for social justice. Keisha Supernant is Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alberta and Director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology. Welcome, Professor Supernant. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be joining you today from Amiskuchibuskaigan, also known as Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, the homeland of the Treaty Six Nations and the Métis Nation. Joining us as well is Lenora McQueen, an activist who has worked tirelessly to preserve the Shoke Hill African Burying Grounds in Richmond, Welcome, Lenora. Thank you for having me, Carolyn. We are very pleased to be joined today by three graduate students from Archaeology Santa Coalition member institutions that will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. In addition to probing the issues raised in episode three of Sapiens series, we will also be discussing insights provided by Professor Supernaut, recent introduction to the volume Archaeologies of the Heart, co-authored by Natasha Lyons. But let me start the conversation going with a question for Lenora McQueen about your activism in the effort to preserve the Shoke Hill African burying grounds in Richmond. As discussed in Sapien's episode, the area was not marked or recognizable as a burial ground. For all of our listeners, when you have a moment, I suggest Googling Shoke Hill African burying grounds to gain a deeper understanding of what Lenora experienced when she first arrived. But back to my question. I know there are currently efforts underway to erect a memorial and give honor to this sacred space. What can we do as young archeologists to help in this effort? The Shaco Hill African burying ground, when I first saw the site. When I first saw the site, I was very confused by it. I had just learned that my fourth great grandmother, Kitty Carey, had spent her last three years of life in the city of Richmond and that she died there in 1857. Um, I had gone there and uh, three day trips I spent there researching, looking, looking for her. And on the third day, I found her in a letter. Um, the letter was written about her death. Her owner's daughter was sharing with a sister that their beloved Kitty uh, had just died that very mo morning. It was a very heartfelt letter that made me cry. Um, after learning that Kitty was in fact in Richmond, I, I sought out to find where she might have been buried and had to do a little quick research. I was given names of several cemeteries in Richmond and I was able to narrow it down based on the time frame when the cemeteries existed as to which burial ground it would have been. 
um, upon arriving, arriving at this burial ground, I didn't recognize it as a burial ground, not at all. Uh, and I was very confused by what I saw when I got there. And it, it was a few months before I was uh, totally able to realize that I in fact was in the right place. Um, and then it was through extensive research um, that I had to conduct in order to understand this site because it had been effectively erased, not only from the visible landscape, but from the memory of people. There were very few, and those were historians who knew it was still there. Um, most people had no idea in the community, no idea at all that it existed. Um, but through research, what I learned is that the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground is very likely the largest burial ground for free people in color, of color and the enslaved in the United States. There were over 22,000 people of African descent buried there. Um, as far as what archeologists can do uh, to help, at this point, well, at this current time, there are a few things. There is a nomination being considered that I helped to research and co-author. Uh, the nomination is for national recognition, uh, state and national recognition. Um, support of that nomination would be a wonderful way to help. And um, if you're willing, that information can be made available on who to write, which would be Julie Langen at the Department of Historic Resources. Uh, a letter to support that nomination would be, a tr would be the most tremendous way to help. Others would be to write city officials, government officials, the railroad officials, um, and anyone, anyone that could make a difference, writing would be effective, I believe. Hi, my name is Dan Pluckoff and I'm a PhD candidate in archeology span at Brown University. Uh, and just to piggyback on that last question um, about memorializing the site, thinking about both places where both of you are working at the, the Indian residential schools and at the Shaco burial ground, it seems clear that these spaces are sites of violence and in this way are different than other kinds of cemeteries that might normally be um, memorialized. And so my question for both of you is, how do you balance the desire among the community to commemorate and honor those buried in those places with, I think at the same time, the necessary need to acknowledge and condemn the histories that created those places. And so um, not only can, you know, the, the question is not only can um, archeologists facilitate that process, but how do we facilitate kind of the decision-making about what form of commemorialization that happens? How do, how do we memorialize this and acknowledge the, the histories at the same time? Thanks for the question, Dan. I might respond by saying, I think the move to commemorate and memorialize is actually a really important part of telling the history. Many of these sites are places of erasure where things have been forgotten, often deliberately forgotten or erased from the landscape. And the histories have been 
uh, not told in the ways that they need to. So I think there are ways to commemorate and memorialize that bring forward not only the importance of honoring those who are buried there, but bringing out that hidden history that many uh, folks who aren't connected to those descendant communities may not know about. And in terms of decision making, I feel that in all these situations, it really has to be so driven by descendant communities. And the ways in which they even want to shape what a memorial looks like, you know, the in, in my own context as a Métis woman working with Indigenous communities in Canada, those communities may have specific ideas about what is an appropriate way to create a memorial space or marker that may not reflect what we see more traditionally in other sort of spaces. So it has to be very much community driven if we're going to respectfully commemorate and remember these often very violent uh, histories of erasure. I agree completely with what was just said. Um, in the case of the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground, though, uh, presently I am publicly the only known descendant. Um, I am sure with there being so many people who were buried at this site, uh, the number is upwards, the estimates are upwards of 22,000 people. There are probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, um, living descendants across the United States that have connections to this place that don't know about those connections yet because this place was effectively erased from memory. Those connections would need to be identified. So um, more research uh, would need to be done to help make those connections. Um, but yes, I believe that uh, the descendant community would need to be involved in the memorialization process and as far as memorialization and the stories of erasure, the um, degradation, the, the abuse uh, that has happened to this site, it needs to be part of the story. It needs to be part of the memorialization. So this, the telling of the story, in my mind, is part of the whole memorial of the place. The story has to be included. If I might just quickly follow up, I think that's a really important point. And but I think we tend to think of commemoration and memorialization as kind of a thing, like as an object or as like a plaque or something like that. And I really appreciate Lenore's uh, comments about the fact that the story itself is the can be commemoration and memorialization and that commemorization and memorialization are processes. They're not an end goal. They're an ongoing remembering and storytelling, and that might shift and, and grow over time in really important ways. Hello. My name is Mariela De Clerc, and I am a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, San Diego. Um, the chapter wrote by Dr. Leons as Supernan relates to me in the essence of the transformation process of becoming a native Boricua, studying my own past and the culture of my island. I really like the four primary elements of heart-centered practice, which is something we and other archaeologists should, should integrate in the process of project development. However, we're looking at observer as ourselves during the process. I wonder if we are ready to go further to integrate the community in the research process, letting the community lead us in the process and becoming an integral part of the research, giving them the freedom to ask their own questions about their own past and use our help to get the answer. So do you 
do we think academia is really ready to implement indigenous and community-based archaeology on a bigger scale and for the changes that will bring to the overlap overall discipline? I think we are at a moment where we're starting to see a shift in archaeology and, and certainly within an academic archaeology, I would say, in a lot of, sort of community-engaged archaeology. And if you read through the additional chapters in Archaeologies of the Heart, I think you'll see that a lot of the, the teaching and a lot of the other chapters are really about that shifting in our practice as archaeologists when we're working with, say, communities that aren't our own, to put the relationships first. And so out of those relations come the research questions that then allow sort of the community to really drive the process. My work now is almost entirely community driven where indigenous communities reach out, they have you know, questions and interests, they have needs. And I work with my students and, and the Institute to try to address those needs using the archeological techniques that we have access to. Uh, and this has of course become extremely important in searching for unmarked graves around Indian residential schools because indigenous communities are turning to a lot of archeologists to help because we have a skill set that is useful in that way. I think there's a lot more, a lot longer of a journey ahead of us, but I have been really encouraged and inspired by the amount of this type of work that is really starting to emerge across many parts of academic archaeology and, and in other contexts very much as well. This is Raphael again, and I would like to build upon this answer to ask Professor Sutanant about the book and the practice of heart-centered archaeology. This book, each chapter presents either a case study or a reflection on how to transform the practice of archaeology. It still holds a very global nod for the lack of centered focus in that they're all researchers at institutions there. So how can relationships and collaborations be built those working to transform archaeology in the global south. Are there, for example, any plans to translate the book? Thank you for that question, Raphael. It's a really important consideration. And I think one of the ways in which we want to follow up, recognizing that most of the case studies are not connected to the Global South and are not by Global South scholars, that there, we want to find ways to broaden the conversation. And I'm doing this in a couple of ways um, in, in working with the Heart Collective who helped to edit and, and bring the book forward. I think translation is a really good one. And I'm gonna take that back to our collective as a way to maybe move forward in that because we recognize that there's also a lot of on the ground work that is not reflected in the scholarly literature in English necessarily. Um, and then there's a lot of on the ground work that is not represented in academic archaeology. There's so, I mean, the majority of archaeology doesn't happen in the academy. It happens in other spaces. And we're not always good at recognizing the need for transformation in those spaces or to support those people who are trying to push for change, for example, in cultural resource management practice in different places. So I appreciate that, that input. And I think that we're going to continue to explore how we can make those connections stronger um, through the organizations and the you know, publications and other things that we're involved in. I'm Elspeth Geiger, and I'm a PhD candidate within the Museum of Anthropological Archaeology at the University of Michigan. And my question is for both guests. And essentially, with exception, even the most passionate and well-meaning archaeologist at the end of the day 
has the luxury to just kind of wash their hands of a project because it doesn't have the same daily significance to a lot of archaeologists that it does for community members. So what I want to do now when, when we're thinking about like a, a heart-based archaeology is how can we not just share emotional burden, but how can we also share in responsibility and accountability as archaeologists? In the case of the Shaco Hill African Burying Ground, and with archaeologists being involved with this burial ground, I guess it's the burial ground still has a very complicated situation. It, it's it's a very it's a threat. It's still a threatened site. So it's not just historically threatened. It's presently threatened. Um, the DC to RVA high speed rail project is going to run its rail line through the burial ground. Um, the proposed widening of I-64, they'll, they'll eventually widen the highway through this burial ground. So, so the, the site is, is threatened and it's not something that I've been able to disconnect from. It's something I've been constantly worried about for the last um, four years now and, and fighting for with, with several advocates, some of which are ar archeologists. Um, on the other side of that, uh, the, these projects would have their own archeologists. So it's, I think it's being viewed differently depending on what side you're on. So those who are advocating for the site are very compassionate for the site and, and that compassion and empathetic, which is tremendously helpful to me because I, I know they understand what it is that I am feeling. Uh, my ancestors are buried there and this threat is terribly painful. And it's something that I have not been able to let, let go of. The, the struggle has been continuous. But on the other side, those who wish to um, further their projects through the site, I don't think they have been empathetic towards the site, not, not in my opinion for they have, they have minimized the site in their studies. They have reduced it to its 1835 size of 3.3 acres when this is a 31 acre burial ground. Uh, the research has been minimal. Um, they have let this site down um, in their studies. Uh, so I'm, I've been in a, in a crazy struggle for this burial ground with, with people looking at it two different ways. Uh, so it's kind, it's kind of hard to, for me to fully answer the question, uh, except that I, I can speak from, I can refer to the people who, who I am communicating with normally, the archeologists who have helped, uh, helped me with this site. Uh, I wouldn't change anything that they that they have done. They they have been wonderful, but then, you know, the, there's the other side, and and I see them a little differently because I've I've seen I've seen the work that they've done. Uh, I've seen the research that they've done. I've examined it very very carefully, and I am not happy at all. The 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 site remains threatened. Building off Lenora's comments, I think it is really important for archaeologists who aren't part of the community 
to continue to push for change in archaeology more broadly, because Lenora's, what she shared with us is very clear that there are archaeologists who are supporting being good relations, you know, uh, helping to uplift the, the voices and, and advocate. And then there's archaeologists who are downplaying the importance of it, who are, you know, doing it very much in a sort of compliance framework and and minimizing sort of, oh, well, it's not as important. And I've definitely seen that in my own context. As someone who is both a member of the communities with whom I work often and a relative, as well as an archaeologist, I cannot separate out the emotional side from being a good relation and being accountable. But when I talk to folks who are not Indigenous, who are not perhaps members of those communities, I think it's really important to understand how to uplift and make space for voices without taking over those voices. Try to make this point really clear. Don't speak on our behalf unless we have asked you to in specific ways. Because what I sometimes see with people who get fired up about an issue or, or have an emotional connection is then they kind of become the voice of something. Sometimes that's appropriate if it's supported by other folks who are from the community around them. But you have to be really careful about that because then you can take up space that really should be making space for the voices of the community. So I encourage uh, archaeologists who are not members of those communities to really think about how your voice is being used, what privilege and power you might have, and then working with those community partners to really understand how that can be most effectively mobilized based on their, their needs and interests. Thank you for that, Dr. Supernaut. And moving off of that, discussing about being an ally for these communities, I have a question um, in regard to the pain of tribute. Um, In Sapien's episode, you spoke about the act of ceremony for when you work on a site. And ceremony can be a powerful way to show empathy and pay tribute to that site and the community connected to it. However, do you see any issue with someone leading a ceremony that is not part of the community that that history is connected to? If so, could you provide other options for how young archeologists can honor a site they are working on that would allow them to show compassion towards that community's heritage. Thanks, Caroline. I think this is a really important question and it does relate to what we were just talking about. I would say that ceremony is very specific and it is very connected to certain communities, their traditions and understandings. And it is not necessarily something that should be done even by every member of that community. Because with internally, there's ways in which people are gifted certain ceremonies and certain knowledge that need to be very much respected. And I'll just give you an example of my own work. As an Indigenous person, when I go into territories where I'm not a relative, I need to be very attentive to the fact that I might have my own personal ceremonies connected to my community and connected to my own practice. Those might not be the right ceremony for me to do on when I'm working with that community, I need to follow their lead. I need to listen to their knowledge holders and their elders about what is appropriate. So what I would say is, if you're not a member of that community, do not perform that ceremony unless you've been given explicit permission and support from an elder or knowledge holder in that community to do so. And we see otherwise it can walk that line of being appropriating rather than kind of honoring. And also not all ceremonies are appropriate for the same locations. Another example from my own work, when I'm working with sites from my own family's heritage, Métis sites, I we tend to do two ceremonies, one that respects our connections to our First Nations relatives, 
And we also do a Catholic prayer because many of our my relatives were practicing Catholics at the time. And so we're trying to find space for both of those at the same site. So each kind of context will be a little bit different. And you definitely need to have relations with the community, with elders and knowledge holders before you bring any ceremony as someone who's not a member of that community. And don't be afraid to ask questions of with your community partners because they will tell you what is and what is not appropriate. And they'll give you that, that guidance should you be in a place where you're ready to learn. Because sometimes they might not teach you that ceremony because you're not at that place yet. So just respecting the fact that that knowledge is very much held in communities and needs to be guided and directed by those knowledge holders that are already there. Hi, this is Dan again. Um, I'm curious to hear from both of you whether you've encountered any kind of contestation or dispute within the communities you're working with, whether they're the descendant communities or in Lenora's case, the, the, the local residents and city officials in Richmond um, about you know, how your work is done and, and really the, the future of the site and how you balance those different kinds of, um, those different interests and those different kinds of stakeholders. So far, I don't believe I've, except my, my differences of opinion concerning the threats on the site meaning the, the DC to RBA high-speed rail project or um, the proposed widening of I-64, um, those I'm in opposition to. But as far as the city is concerned, uh, city officials, um, they have been very supportive. Um, residents also have been very supportive. Um, so I, myself, I haven't received any opposition to anything I've tried to further on behalf of the burial ground so far. I have encountered a few things that I think I'd like to just briefly discuss. A couple of times I have worked in environments where there is dispute within the community or between two indigenous communities around the work that's happening. I actually wrote an article in 2014 with Gary Warwick detailing some of my challenges in my PhD program, where I was sort of in the middle of a dispute between two indigenous nations. And it was largely due to settler colonialism that that dispute existed, but my work ended up sort of being positioned in it in a way that ultimately made me really uncomfortable and really made me question whether or not archaeology should have been done at all at that time because it had the potential to do harm. I've also been encountering pushback around the work around Indian residential schools, not so much from within communities because Many communities are, are really wanting to find the truth of what happened, to try to locate their, their missing children. How exactly that process will play out you know, is an area of discussion and whether or not anything happens once the possible grave locations are found is also an ongoing discussion, especially around exhumation and forensic work. But in general, everyone's supportive of finding um, where these children might be buried. However, there are a lot of not, not a lot. There is a subset of non-Indigenous Canadians who are actively trying to deny and downplay the presence of said graves. We've seen this in academic circles. We've seen this in more public uh, conversations, videos on YouTube and all sorts of things, really trying to deny that there are in fact unmarked graves of children around residential schools 
even though there's an extensive historical record and there is extensive testimonies of survivors who have seen have buried bodies, literally can talk about digging graves for other children. And those are all kind of minimized in these conversations. And so for me, I think it's really important to push back against the logic of these arguments that people are trying to mobilize against what is an overwhelming body of evidence. But in the current moment that we're in, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of ways in which things are are getting spun. Evidence is sort of less given less weight, perhaps, than it it once did. Uh, So I think it's important to continue to push back against this denialism that is emerging in a number of spaces that I find very concerning. Um, This is Mariela. Um, Thinking on the work that both of you do and the interaction with the Afro-American and Indigenous communities, we share some kind of parallelism with the current communities under colonialism. I would like to ask, what we as young archaeologists can do to help the communities that are on the colonialism or similar circumstances to reclaim their ancestor burials and circus places. I think there's a lot that's shared among different communities who have been um, oppressed under colonization in a variety of ways. Although I also want to emphasize that I think we also have to be very attentive to the differences. Even though we may all experience the same systemic oppression, the way that it enacted on indigenous bodies versus African-American or other colonized communities will be different. And it's important that those voices be centered in any um, moving forward in, in how to reclaim this. I've seen this happen when we talk about ancestors. So in a lot of the places where I work, engagement with ancestors, ancestral remains, uh, images of ancestors, things are generally something that communities do not want. They don't want uh, images distributed. They don't want other people working with ancestors. They want to be able to make decisions specifically about what happens. And there's concerns when, say, an image of of an ancestor circulates. But that's not true in every Indigenous community. There are some Indigenous communities where that's actually a form of celebration and it's, and the images are not a problem. So I think it's important to be attentive to that and not try to paint every uh, community who may be experiencing um, the effects of, of that ongoing colonization in the same way. That being said, I think young archaeologists can really ask questions about who does archaeology for what purposes and what kind of stories does it tell? because archeology span has been a tool of colonization. It's been an active tool of colonization, of dispossession of our lands and our bodies and our histories. And non-indigenous, non-descended archeologists have told our stories. And I think that for every archeologist who's coming through a program now, that question of, what are are we doing archeology span for? Who's telling the stories? Whose voices are being heard? You should be continually asking that question. And then who ultimately has the right to study the past, right? This is a really big question I ask my undergraduate students. I say, well, who gave archeologists the right to be the stewards of the past, especially in colonized places? And the truth is colonization did. So we need to continue to work to change our discipline in order for, uh, to create a different power dynamic and to empower communities to tell our own stories using the often really important tools of archaeology, but using them in ways that can celebrate and show those vibrant, uh, rich histories, and not putting archaeology at the center of that necessarily either, 
because our our stories and our our ways of telling our own history are also valid and important and uh, really something that many communities want to share and they just haven't had the opportunity for those voices to be heard. So I think archaeology can help facilitate and empower communities to do that. This is Elspeth again, and speaking of trying to change the way that we do and how we do archaeology, um, do you feel that trying to do an archaeological practice with care embedded in it, can this in some way outweigh a lot of the drawbacks of having to work within a colonial system like archaeology? Kind of put another way, if what we're doing is using archaeology as a tool to do this good work, do you feel like using it this way has the potential to change the system. I'm happy to respond again, although I don't want to, I feel like I've been talking a lot compared to Lenora. So Lenora, if at any point you want to jump in, please, please let me know. <laughs> well, thank you. But you're, you are truly the expert here regarding archaeology. Um, I can, I can speak as a descendant, but there's not been any archaeology on this site yet. Uh, on, on the Shakahoe African burying ground other than a very small part under the highway um, and nothing anywhere else. So there are, there are things that I have not experienced yet um, that I've not had to fight against or support or, I mean, there are plenty of things that I worry about. Um, I am worried about archeology span on this site. Um, that these this is the burial place of my ancestors. I I I would not prefer for them to be dug up. Um, there has been um, a lot of abuse to the site, but certainly I'd want them to rest in peace. So anything that would be done to the site, I would I would want it to be non-evasive. Um, I of course as, as far as research and telling the story of of this place and of the people. I would want to definitely be involved, and and so far I have been involved because I've taken it upon I've taken it upon myself to do so. So when I saw these projects um, were minimizing this site, I did the re I did the research myself, very very extensive research. So so I've inserted myself into this. And, and, and been a big part of it and retelling the story and getting it out there. And it's very, very important to me that the story be accurate, that the history be accurate. So I have dug very, very deeply in, into the history, into uncovering all of the, well, maybe not all of the bits and pieces because I'm sure there are still more to uncover. Um, but the story is immensely important to me that it's, its accuracy is immensely important to me. And I don't think anyone is going to care about it more than, than I do. So I, it's, it's definitely important that uh, descendants be completely involved. And so yes, archeology span will come, there'll be a place for it, but, but I certainly hope it, it would be as I said, non-evasive. <laughs> hmm. I hope and I have to believe that doing archaeology in a different way will change its structure. I think centering care and, and centering relations and centering the voices of descendant uh, communities in many places 
will inevitably shift the way we actually do our practice. One of the areas I think we're seeing this and seeing it in really important and interesting ways is in the study of ancestors. There remains a narrative in some parts of archaeology that repatriation and returning ancestors is going to be the end of, you know, a scientific study of, of ancestral remains. But in fact, what we see is that when the power shifts, when the descendant communities have the ability to make decisions about what happens to their ancestors, sometimes they are really interested in what the science and what the archaeology can tell them. But even more importantly to me is that they often ask questions that the archaeologists or the biological anthropologists don't think of. And then it challenges us to think, okay, here's a question which has never been asked about this, you know, ancestor, this particular material, this particular landscape, this particular tool. How do we then innovate? How do we use these tools in a new way, come up with new questions or methods? to address the, the interests and concerns of community. So I actually think this is where some of the most exciting archeology span is actually happening, right? I, I have a background in GIS and spatial analysis. When I really started engaging in indigenous knowledge, it made me realize I kind of had to break GIS for it to have the capacity to encompass indigenous ways of knowing and understanding the landscape. The tool's not built for that, but we could potentially build a, a tool to do that. Right. So I actually think this is um, going to be challenging how we practice archaeology, but it actually make archaeology better. It'll actually make our methods better, our relationships better and our, you know, the application of the science that we, we study better. And so I think it's, it's a really bright path forward if this is the one we, we take. There is so much more for us to discuss that unfortunately that will have to be the last one for this episode of Sapiens Talkback. Professor Sipanand and Nora McQueen, thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us. Sapiens Talkback was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and Society of Black Archaeologists with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Justin Donovan, and Ayana Fuellen. Special thanks also to Chip Colwell and the production team at Sapiens and the Wenner Grant Foundation for Anthropological Research and the House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the University of Michigan Museum of Anthropological Archaeology. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today. Elspeth Gaiga from the University of Michigan, Mariela de Clet Perez from UC San Diego, and Dan Plekoff from Brown University. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talkback. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Science is a member of the American Anthropological Association podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith with Alex Simons as our engineer and Rebecca Curdice as our production assistant. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaia Cojono, the Cayuga Nation. The Gaia Cojono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of the Gai Cajona dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of the Gai Cajona people past and present to these lands and waters. 
and we encourage you to investigate the Indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode in the Sapiens podcast series, Curating Aska Taking. And then the following week, check back in with us here at Sapiens Talk Back when our guests will be Sven Hawkinson and Tiffany Fryer. I'm Rafael Cruz And I'm Caroline Barsotti. Thanks for listening.